American culture is a culture of comfort. Everywhere you look, it's being sold to you left and right. It is the cash cow of society. Comfort, comfort. They want you to be comfortable. How many of you here today would love a cinder block couch in your living room so that you can get nice and cozy while watching the next show that you're currently addicted to? Yeah, no one, right? No one. No no one wants this in their living room. However, it might work well out in your backyard. Yeah, some of us would like that because you expect that in the backyard there's a lower level of comfort, right? Comfort. Today we start a series called Uncomfortable, and I want to really address something that's really uncomfortable, and that's the Christian faith. The Christian faith is very uncomfortable. Now, I don't know, maybe you're the perfect Christian. You're not like me, but personally, when I'm having to invite people to church or share my faith, or I'm in Walmart and God kind of whispers that I need to go pray for someone, that's uncomfortable. Anybody with me? It's a little, little uncomfortable. So we're going to talk about that. But I today really want to focus on, as we build community at the Exchange Church, the uncomfortability of inviting people to church. Mm, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. And, and I know that some of us sitting here today, we think to ourselves, well, I've not been trained on how to invite people to church. That's okay. I, I totally get it. But what I want to say to you today is that probably inviting people to church has a whole lot less to do with strategy and it has a whole lot more to do with a transformed life. I I don't know if you remember the day you said yes to Jesus, if you can go back that far, or you you were aware enough and of sober mind to realize what he did in your heart that day when you thought, man, the grace of God is taking all of that away? And you were just so grateful, and you were overjoyed, and you were giddy. Do you remember just being a giddy Christian totally immature, didn't understand anything, and you were going around witnessing to everybody with the worst theology on planet Earth. And it's taken years for them to recover for your exciting days. But you know what you did? You shared what you had. And there was passion inside of you. The key to evangelism is not strategy. I know a lot of people that know the strategy and aren't inviting anyone to the house of God. The key to inviting people to the house of God, the key to building community in the house of God, the key to growing this thing we call kingdom is simply this, it's passion. It's falling in love again with your first love. And that's that's my goal today. I know that as I've even been looking at this sermon this week, and over the last few weeks, man, I have just been falling in love with Jesus over and over and over and over again. And that can't help but transform you. Like when you just, you just go back to the day, right? But then not only going back to the day, you experience the day today, and something shifts in your mindset. I want to take you to Scripture, probably before we put it on screen, I want to take you to what I consider to be the most famous Scripture in America the most famous scripture in America. Now, let's take a poll first because polls are always fun in a crowd this size. I would like you on the count of three to shout out what you think to be the most famous 
scripture, block of text, whatever, in America, and say it loud, say it proud. First service did great. They shouted very loud, don't be, don't be shy, okay? It's okay if you even just say a book that's not in the Bible. That's okay. Just if you say it, own it, all right? On the count of three, tell me what is the most famous scripture in America. One, two, three. Some of you said, John 3, 16. John 3, 16. That, I like the unity here. That's pretty good. You sound like a bunch of Christians. But I didn't ask what was famous in the church. I asked what was famous in the world, in America. And it's not John 3, 16. People that are far from Christ don't have John 3, 16 memorized. They don't walk around saying, for God so loved the world. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're not like, blah, 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 beep, 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 beep. God loved the beep, world. They're not doing any of, <laughs> they don't know that verse. If they knew that verse, they, they'd save themselves already. <laughs> here's, here's the chapter they do know. You see it in Hollywood all the time, at funerals, at weddings, whenever there's mourning and grieving. I'm, I'm going to prove this to you that it's the most famous scripture. I'm just going to say the first part of the first line, and you're going to finish the rest. The Lord is my shepherd. Oh, look, even when you said it, you just sound so calm. It's like, yeah, that is the most famous scripture in the, in the world, right? I want to talk to you about Psalm 23. And my goal today for you is to help you rediscover your love for Jesus. Psalm 23, it says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want is the, what I grew up memorizing. I never understood it. I thought it meant I didn't want Jesus. I didn't get it till I was probably like 28. I'm serious. So I changed to the NIV translation so that you guys can, can be ahead than I was. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. That's what that means. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through, I used to, the valley of the shadow of death. How many of you used to tremble when you would even quote that? <laughs> I don't want to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? This, this translation is a little more friendly. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, let's go back memory lane. How many of you had a grandma or a, a granny or a oma or a mima, whatever you called your grandmother, and somewhere in her house on tapestry wall was embroidered Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Remember, sweet grandma just used to read it and it just collect dust. Do you remember that? You just walk in grandma's house and dust on that poor tapestry thing. I ain't been washed in years, but it, had, it has been there. It's been there longer than grandma's been there. The Lord is my shepherd. When I get to this part that says, um, you know, his rod and his staff, they comfort me. I'm not thinking sweet little grandma's Jesus. You rod. And your staff, they comfort me. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm thinking of what the Bible's really trying to say about Jesus. You know, I'm, I, I go back to what I pictured Jesus as a kid. I grew up 
at this uh, small church in East Austin. Still there today. I don't know if it's still running. or Probably still running. On occasion, I'll drive past it when it's empty, and I'll just kind of stroll down memory lane. And on the second floor, but it was the basement of the church, the second floor basement of the church was Sunday school. And I remember going down the stairs to Sunday school, and I had this little room and the metal folding chairs and a circle. And on the wall, teens, young adults, we had these things called flannel boards. Anyone remember flannel boards? Those of you that are new to Jesus, you can thank God right now that you never had to endure flannel boards. Flannel boards were, were like, you know, they had pictures of Joseph, and the hands were never right, right? Sometimes they had five fingers, sometimes four. You just never really knew. And the, the hands were always in positions that humans don't, don't hold. You ever seen a human walk around Walmart like this? It's Walmart, yeah. Good. All right, well, thanks. And in that classroom, I remember a picture of Jesus. It was an oval picture of Jesus with gold trim. You may have seen it too. And it, it's like an Olin Mills Jesus, white Jesus, with a spray tan. And his hair's perfectly wavy. And he's looking off the distance, not looking in the camera. He's looking like this. Anyone remember that? And his hair just had a little bit of a receding hairline, just a little bit. And it was just, every curl was just in unison. And it was perfect. And and that was a great Jesus at nine years old, but not so much at 39 when my life is on fire and I need somebody with some strength and some power that can step into my situation. And so I look at Psalm 23 now and I I don't see Owen Mills Jesus. I see buff Jesus. I see, I see Jesus who like knows what he's doing. I see Jesus who walks into a room and commands the attention of people. I see Jesus who knows how to flip some tables. I, I see Jesus who is strong enough and secure enough in himself to bring children around him and get on their level. I, you know, I see Jesus that has a, a rod, a rod with muscles that he can flex when the enemy's trying to do something to me, come up on the side and I don't see him. And he takes that rod with one swing and he stops the enemy. That's the Jesus I see. I see Jesus with a staff, a strong staff, a thick staff that he just commands attention just by holding the staff. Not the, not the dainty little shepherd curl, you know what I'm saying? A little curl and it's got, I don't know, just fancy engraving stuff. No, I see, I see a rugged staff, one that's been used a time or two on some sheep that got astray. Speaking of sheep, I don't know if you have if you've researched sheep or not, but sheep are funny creatures. You know, the Bible talks about us being sheep an awful lot. And uh, sheep get distracted very, very easily. Squirrel. That's what sheep will do. Sheep will be talking to you and they get distracted. Did you know that sheep, their eyesight, it's almost a 360 degree peripheral view that they have. However, they can't see right in front of their face. That's what God calls you. You see everything else, but you can't see right in front of your face. (laughs) Calls me that too. 
You know what else is funny about sheep? Man, they get thirsty, and, and they don't really uh, wait for the herd to get a drink. If they're thirsty, they just they go get a drink, and then the, the herd will eventually follow them. But they'll walk up to a, a stream, and they'll look at the water because they don't have good depth perception. Remember I said they can't see in front of their face? They go down to the water. They put their whole head in the water when they're thirsty. They should put their tongue, but they put their whole head. Oh, and by the way, another funny thing about sheep, their wool is so absorbent that when it gets wet, it quickly gets the water on their wool. And before you know it, sheep who don't have good eyesight and don't have good balance are now top heavy above the raging rapids. And they fall in. Just trying to nourish themselves. They were thirsty, but they fell in. And hopefully, <laughs> the good shepherd is standing by. And as they're going downstream, they look back, meh, meh, meh. And the shepherd takes the staff, and he wraps it around the neck, and he pulls them to shore. Has he done that a time or two for you? <sighs> the shepherd. The shepherd and his sheep. That's the picture of Jesus that I have. The Lord is my shepherd. That's why I'm not in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. You know why he makes us lie down in green pastures? Because we're not smart enough to do it on our own. We, uh, we, we, you and me, come on. Let's be honest. We like to lay down in the mud in the pig pen, don't we? We do. And as a guy who personally God has had to make lie down in green pastures, I can appreciate this verse. It means a whole lot more to somebody once you've been broken before the Lord than it does pre-brokenness. He leads me beside still waters. So he makes me, he leads me, he restores my soul. He makes me. He leads me. He restores me. That's the big three. Ready for big four? Big four. He guides me into paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. He makes me. He restores me. He leads me. He guides me. Why? Because he will be found faithful to his word. Yes, he he loves you, and he, he cares about you, and he wants the best for you. And let me tell you, he's working behind the scenes for you. But at the end of the day, he will not be found a liar. He makes you, he leads you, he restores you, and he guides you for his namesake. Next line. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, which you will. Look at your neighbor and say, you will. Look at your other neighbor and say, oh, you too. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. In verse 5, I'm not sure that you and I would have written it this way if the pen were in our hand, but verse 5 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. See, if I had written that, Scott, I would have, I would have said, you prepare a table before me in your presence, preferably corner booth, window view, while we look at the valley and you destroy my enemies. 
And don't, don't act too righteous. You, you would have done that too. But see, God wrote this text. God wrote Psalm 23, and he, he meant what he said. He prepares a table before you, not in the absence of your enemies, but in the very presence of your conflict. There is a table set up for you. And here's what I want you to get today. When you go home, I want you to remember this message. This table that's being set up, it's a table for two. If we had room service today, I would do a better job explaining to you exactly what I'm talking about at this table for two. Oh, man, look at this. Exchange Church does have room service. Somebody must have called. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, Serge, excuse me. Any chance you have Dr. Pepper, Coca-Cola with you? Okay, bye. Thank you. Let's give it up for our waiters. That's, uh, that's awesome. I, uh, man, one second, my mouth, Ew, a little dry. I, um, I love this table, and I hope that you understand that this table is a miracle. This table, this is a seat for you, and I get there's a lot of yous here today, but I'm talking to you. You, you, only you. This is your seat. And then over here, this is for the creator, your father, your daddy, your papa. This is, this is him. The, the one that your heart longs for and he's, he's already at the table. He prepared it. He was at the table before the table was even prepared. Have a seat. I'm glad you decided to join me. Thirsty? There you go. So, how's life? <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. And so he's inviting you into conversation and in, into relationship and into intimacy and into vulnerability. And you're sitting over here excited, actually, because for the first time, you realize you don't have to put the food on the table. It's already there. So you do what a lot of us do. You just uh, start to eat. Mm. 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 Oh, 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 man, that's really dry. <laughs> this table, a miracle. so much going on around me right now. Financial pressure. 
relationship issues. Moments where so disappointed in people that I almost walked away from it all. Anyone, anyone here have external things going on around you? In the presence of your enemies. An enemy doesn't always look like a human being. An enemy, sometimes an external thing can be an internal thought. An internal thought that is coming against what God has, has prepared for you. But th this table is a miracle. And in fact, the readers of Psalms back, back in the day, they would hear the word table and their mind would begin to run. And they would say, wait, 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 table. What? How do I know table? My, my, my grandfather's grandfather talked about a table and my grandfather talked about a table. Where, how do I know table, dad? How do I know table? Oh, son, you remember it's in Exodus 25. In the temple was a table, and on the table was a, the bread of presence set before you so that it would always be before your eyes. When, when we read in Psalm about table, we immediately thought about the presence of God. And in that culture that day, whenever they would have their neighbors come and eat at their table, that meant that they were at peace with their neighbor. So in Scripture, when I'm reading Psalm 23, he sets a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I automatically, instinctively know he's talking about presence and peace. And I wonder how many of us here today are dying inside because we need the presence of God and we need the peace of God to be released in our life. It's at the table. You don't have to run for it. You don't have to manufacture it. It's at, it's at the table. It's already there. If you'll, if you'll actually just sit down, your shepherd has provided the table. Your shepherd has provided it. But he has to be your shepherd. And maybe that's the question. That, that's up for debate this morning. Only you know the answer to that. He is a shepherd, but he may not be your shepherd. But if he is your shepherd, there's a table ready for you. There are two problems with the table that I see. I want to share them with you. Um, the first problem is that you and I are inclined to do this, especially Austinites, man. Let me just tell you. We, Austin is a resort town, and we work so hard to look like we're not working hard. You ever notice that? I'm an Aggie from College Station. I grew up in Austin, then I went to A&M, and I'm not making this a rivalry statement. It's just the truth. A&M will stand the entire game for hours and hours and hours. Any Aggies in the house can vouch for this. They just stand, and they holler, and they, they do chants, and they're excited. They don't care if they look like a fool. You go to a UT game, they're excited inside, but they're not going to show you that. They're going to lean back and do whatever this thing is. You know what I mean? They're like, here come horns. Like, is that all in? I don't know. <laughs> and so what we do in Austin, the table of God, the presence of God, the peace of God, we want it really, really bad, but we don't want anybody to know that we want it. Hey, God. Hey, thanks. Mmm, mmm. Love them grapes. Thank you. Hey, listen. 
I'm a real important guy, and I have a meeting to go to. If you wouldn't mind, if you just kind of look through your schedule, see what you can take for me today, um, you know, take care of that 10 o'clock for me. Oh, by the way, yeah, bless my parents while you're at it. Oh, and, and uh, fix my kids, please. <laughs> Woo, I am, I'm done with them, but hey. Mm, this is, this is really good. Yeah, I know, I'll, I will be right back. I've got some problems to take care of. We're over here, not allowing the shepherd to be the shepherd. And we have taken up shepherdship in our life. And we want to fix all of our problems, and we think we've got all the great solutions because you've seen this fixed before by so-and-so down the road or so-and-so in my family, so I'm going to take care of it. I've got it. I'm, I'm dependable. I'm self-reliant. I know what I'm doing. And let me just tell you, Church, the biggest problem is not the problems you're trying to fix. The biggest problem in your life is the empty chair. Somehow, some way, when we find a way to sit all the way down and look at him face to face, all of this, and I don't know how it happens, but Matthew 6.33 tells us that all of this gets taken care of. Better than if you try to do it yourself. When you try to be your own shepherd, you only get the protection and the, the glory and the results of a human shepherd. But when you lay down your life for the one who laid down his life for you, suddenly a whole new level of supernatural things start to come your way. A table has been prepared for you in the presence of your enemy. The empty chair is a problem, but there's one other problem I see. I, I want to talk to you about that. You're doing good, Chad. No, I'm not ready for you, bro. <laughs> the empty chair is a problem, but the extra chair is almost an equal problem. I told you you were invited to a table for two, but not a table for three. And I, I'm a little concerned that our current Christianity, our lack of intimacy, you see, once you encounter intimacy with Christ at a table for two, you don't have room for a third chair. But unfortunately, we don't allow ourselves to go there, so we don't even notice when a third chair shows up. The enemy is at your table. 1 Peter 5 tells us, first of all, there is a very real enemy. The enemy comes in like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The enemy is real, and he's looking for a third seat. Yes, And he needs just a crevice. He doesn't need the garage door to be open. He needs just a crevice. Look at this. Watch Watch this. It's right here. And that's how he does it. How's your marriage? It's good. I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling like, man, you deserve, you deserve a lot of respect. You work a lot of hours. You're a good dad, good husband hard worker, 
Are you sure you're getting the respect you deserve? Don't talk. I don't want to have marriage counseling after service. I um, I noticed, I noticed that uh, she's uh, pretty strong-willed. That one. She's got opinions on everything. Doesn't she? She does. She's very strong-willed. You like that about her, but man, that sure gets old. Doesn't it? You see what you see what he does? Sorry, baby. You see what he does? He'll even use truth. The truth that she's strong not not against Amber. That's brilliant. She's strong, she's a strong woman, but he will use twith truth and then distort it. And then you'll start asking yourself questions. Is that really what I want? Do, do I really want a man that, that's committed to work, so passionate about helping other people, and I, I, I don't feel so valued in his eyes? Do I, do I really want a woman who's so strong and strong-willed and has opinions, or do I just want a woman who, who will do everything that I say? All, all he needs is a crevice to get in. And, and let, me just, let me just tell you something. I don't know if you've ever been on a date with your spouse at a table for two, and someone else in town that you know comes up and they put their hand on the back of the chair like this. Don't ever allow them to put the hand on the back of the chair when you're on a date with your spouse. In fact, ask the waiter to remove the chairs so that as people pass by, they understand this is a table for two. Because all it takes for the enemy is to get his hand here and he's down. You're still working for that guy, huh? Man, he is a control freak. You deserve a raise by now. You've worked so hard. <laughs> yeah, you, you've, been, you've, you've been grateful for 10 years. The, the gratitude's getting old. You need to start getting rewarded. Come on, you, you deserve this. You need to do what makes you happy. And suddenly we can't even hear what the Creator is trying to say to us because we've got a third voice at the table. It's not even room noise anymore. It's table noise. And it's subtle, isn't it? Mm. Hey, thanks for letting me eat your food. These, these grapes, man. I feel like they're old. They, um, they tasted better when they're in season. Uh, it's all right. Hey, I'm thirsty. Can I have some? Mm. You're thirsty? How do you know if the enemy's at your table? I'll tell you how you know. You know because you're sitting here and you were in conversation with the Lord, but all of a sudden you have this thought in your heart, in your mind, and the thought is simple. It says this, there's something better at another table. I want what he's having. I want, I want that tape. That food looks better over there. That, that spouse 
looks better over there. Those, I wish my kids were obedient like those kids. The enemy will always try to get you to want what's at another table rather than what the Lord has set at your table. And, and let me just tell you something. It's, it's, it's a false belief that the, the grass is greener on the other side. The grass is greener on the side that gets watered. Another way you can tell if the enemy's at your table, you have this thought, this fleeting thought. It seems, it seems like it's not a big deal at first. You're just tired and, and you think, I'm not going to make it. You think you're not going to make it. You think you're not going to get through this. You think you're not going to recover. You think your marriage is not going to work. You think your kids aren't going to come to know the Lord. You think you're not going to get your education. You think you're not going to get debt free. I'm, I know that we've had these thoughts over and over and over. And you think, man, this is just not working out for me. I'm not going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to make it. Where did you get that language from? Because it wasn't from the one sitting on the other side of the table. Because a verse before, he said you were going through a valley, not going to a valley. Another way you know if the, the enemy's sitting at your table, you have this thought inside, you're not good enough. You're not good enough. I will never understand how someone who was fashioned and formed by the Creator thinks that they're not good enough. I will never understand how I fall into that trap myself. I, I, I know the truth, and I want the truth to set me free, but somehow this third chair slips up to my table, and I go through seasons and moments where I don't feel like I'm worthy. I don't feel like I'm valuable. Looking at a room this size with this many people right now, sitting next to you, are a ton of people that don't feel worthy, they don't feel like they have any value. They don't feel pretty. They don't feel like they're supporting their family as the men of their home. They don't feel like their voice matters. They don't feel like they have purpose. They don't feel like they're making a difference. Can I just tell you the question that all of culture right now is asking is this, am I enough? John 10, 10 says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. We know John 10, 10. We say that a lot around here, but do you know John 10, 11? John 10, 11 says, I am the good shepherd. It's pointing back to Psalm 23. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So if you're ever wondering, are you good enough? Do you matter? Do you have value? Does any of this have purpose? If you ever wondered that, don't, don't look deep down inside. Don't examine your navel. Don't look inward. Look up and look out. And look who's invited you to this table. It says that he will lay down his life for you. Do you know how much this reservation cost? It cost everything for you. A table, a table for two. Are you good enough? You're overqualified to be you. 
And the final thing you might hear if the enemy is at your table is everyone and everything is out to get you. Whew. The spirit of paranoia sets in. Oh, I hate. I've had that happen a couple times or two. Well, a couple times is two. Some of you are processing that right now. I've had that happen a couple times or more. You know, somebody does you wrong and suddenly you feel like all the world is out to get you. And, and you've not dealt with that situation, so all of a sudden you're walking around with clenched fist. You don't mean to hurt anybody. You don't want to hurt anybody, but you're ready because you're not going to get caught from behind like you did last year. You're not, you're not going to let somebody sneak up on you and, and hit you in the back like happened to you years ago. No, you're ready. You're ready. You may not walk around with this up, but you're ready. You're ready. And if something's going to happen and somebody's going to go down, it's not going to be you this time because you're going to hit first. If you even sense that something's going wrong, you're going to be the one to attack because you're not going to get hurt again. Your heart can't handle it to get hurt again. So you're ready. Man, that's just the enemy. And God's sitting there saying, all right, A, you're at a table with me. Let's get focused. Push that noise out. Let's get focused. A, you're at a table with me. B, everybody's not against you. And C, even if everyone were against you, if God is for you, who can be against you? So I'm not focused on fighting people. at the table. I'm focused on the call of God on my life. And by the way, the call of God on my life is not to be a preacher. The call of God on my life is not to be a husband or a father. The highest call on my life is to sit at the table and to see him face to face, to engage in prayer known as talking to God and his presence. That is the highest call that I carry. That's why you and I were born. That is why God wanted family is for this moment before the foundations of the earth were laid. This is the table he had prepared for you. What gets me though is God doing this in front of the enemies. Isn't that kind of like, wow, what, what does that mean, God? Why do you want to do this in front of my enemies? I'll tell you why he wants to do this in front of your enemies. Because we know in Psalm 34, 5, it says those who look to him are radiant. radiant. Those who look to him are radiant. And God wants my enemies to see it. Not to get them back, but to give them a hope. Because even in my fight, I've still got a song. You know, the great thing is when I'm not quite so concerned about me and mine, I can take what's on my table and I can share. Want, want one? Want one? Something? Want one? Just kidding. Yeah, man. Muffin? Come on, go big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Want something? Come on. Oh, she goes for my. All right. What you want? Good, good, good. Here. There you go. Here, come on. Grab you something. The grapes are amazing. Here. 
Here, take that, pass that, pass that on back. Pass that on back. And you know what happens? When I sit at the table, I'm suddenly empowered to nourish those around me. Now you may be saying, oh, pastor, pastor, wait. What about, what about your table? You're losing food from your table. And I say to you, that's okay. Because it was never about what's on the table. It's always been about who's at the table. Will you bow your head and close your eyes this morning? Maybe you're here this morning and you are ready to say yes to Jesus Christ. Maybe you grew up knowing him and, and you've just drifted and wandered away and, and you want to come back to the heart of God. You, you sensed his love for you and his, his mercy and grace toward you this morning in this sermon. You sensed his, the strength and the power that he wants to display for you, but also his gentleness that he wants to do life with you. And you're ready to say yes to Jesus. You're ready to acknowledge the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth, died on a cross, carried the weight of our sin, overcame our sin, overcame the grave so that you and I could live victoriously. If that's you and you're ready to say yes to Jesus, will you lift your hands? We had several people in first service. Thank you. One, two, three, four. Good. Four. Awesome. You can put your hands down. There's not a formula to it. There's no strategy. It's just a simple prayer that you say and believe with your heart. I'm going to lead you in that prayer, and I'm going to ask our entire church to boldly declare and repeat after me. And it goes something like this. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that he rose from the grave. I want you to be my Lord and be my Savior. From this moment forward, my life will never be the same. I'm a child of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.